What a glorious truth and a promise that we have in God's Word. Speaking of God's Word, take up your copy of the Word of God if you have it with you. We'll resume our teaching now through this letter to the Galatian church, now turning our attention to chapter 5 of Galatians, and today we'll focus on verses 1 through 6, so follow along with me, if you will, from God's holy word. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not, attain- be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Behold, I, Paul, say unto you, that if ye be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. For I testify again to every man that is circumcised that he is a debtor to do the whole law. Christ is become of no effect unto you, whosoever of you are justified by the law. Ye are fallen from grace. For we through the Spirit wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. The Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let's open in a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, as we come to Your Word this morning, we give You thanks and pray for the presence and power of Your Holy Spirit to attend both the preaching and the hearing of Your Word. We are thankful for the truth and fidelity of Your Holy Word, Your holy and errant Word. We are thankful that You have elected, called, and regenerated us and have given us saving faith and justified us in Your sight. We are thankful for Your work of sanctification in our lives and for Christ who indwells us, which is our hope of glory. Grant that as we take heed to Your teaching and believe and trust and see Christ, we will be conformed more and more into His image and grow in our love for the things which You love. We ask that you would lead us now with humble hearts before your word of truth as we come in Jesus' name. Amen. We turn our attention to Galatians 5, and the subject is Christian liberty. Christian liberty stands on the knife edge, the knife edge between license and legalism. It is one of those teachings from Scripture that is simultaneously easy to articulate and difficult to understand and embrace and apply to our lives. If you've spent any time on the internet looking around even just a little at the world of Christian ministries that try to answer questions on their websites or in their lectures and teachings, One of the more common categories of questions that you will run into is on the topic of Christian liberty. Is it okay to do this? Or is it okay to do that? Can a Christian use this kind of language? Or eat this kind of food? Or dress in a certain way? Or smoke an occasional cigar? As we continue the preaching series now through Galatians, we arrive here at chapter 5 and verse 1, And we find that point in Pauline exposition that we sort of look for every time we come to one of his epistles. He pivots from what up to this point has been primarily a defense of doctrine and his teaching to what we will now see is primarily an exhortation in application. Teaching transitions to application. 
Chapter 5, verse 1 is, is the hinge verse that marks this transition. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. In this single verse, we find what we may consider to be a theme verse for the whole of Paul's letter to the Galatian church. At the beginning of chapter 1, if you will recall, in his greeting, Paul writes, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for our sins to deliver us, to deliver us from this present evil age. To deliver us is liberty language. If you recall in chapter 2, Paul speaks of the false brethren unawares brought in who came in privily to spy out our liberty which we have in Christ Jesus that they might bring us into bondage. These, as you recall, were the Judaizers who were teaching that Christians must be circumcised in order to be true, full-fledged Christians, in order to be true sons of Abraham. Then in chapter 3, Paul is teaching on that. He is teaching that we are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus and no longer kept under the law, no longer under a schoolmaster. In other words, we are not held captive by the unsurmountable requirements of the law. In no uncertain terms and in direct opposition to the Judaizers, he declares, they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. Paul emphasizes and expounds that foundational doctrine that we are justified through faith and not of any external works or acts of righteousness. For that would give opportunity to boast, would it not, as he would later write to the Ephesians. Then in chapter 4, bondage is the key word. And Paul reminds the Galatians that in Christ they have been set free and that to return to the weak and beggarly elements is a desire to be in bondage again. We are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free woman, Sarah. We are heirs of the covenant promises made to Abraham and his offspring. We are spiritual heirs, as we read in Romans 8. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Why? Why would any born-again Christian ever turn back from freedom in Christ to be in under the yoke of bondage that the law has to offer? That is the question. As Paul hears of their coming under the bewitching influence of the Judaizers, he is provoked to wonder, you observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid that I may have labored over you in vain. Indeed, the whole thrust of Paul's teaching has been concerned with the freedom and liberty Christ has purchased for His flock in the Galatian churches. And so He is warning and urging them not to surrender their freedom, that birthright, for a yoke of bondage. So now Paul in verse 1, as we read it again, writes, Stand fast therefore in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Note that He is giving a command. It's an imperative It's something that we are to do. This is something based upon all of the teaching and the defense of faith that he has made up to this point, something that he is calling the Galatian church to do, and something that we are to do. But in order to receive the teaching, 
We need to understand the teaching. Paul exhorts, stand fast. We can therefore know there is a temptation or an error that the Galatians, and by implication we, are prone to. A temptation and an error that we are to guard against. For there hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. So with this understanding, let's look at the liberty wherewith Christ has set us free and see what the ditches on either side of the road are. What are the dangers that threaten our Christian liberty? And this leads us to our three points for this message. We will examine Christian liberty, which is our goal and the subject of the Christian liberty that Paul speaks about here. And the other two, these two ditches, legalism and antinomianism or libertinism. And these two, these two ditches, have been referred to as the two thieves of the gospel. Tertullian said, Just as Christ was crucified between two thieves, so this doctrine of justification is ever crucified between two opposite errors. Tertullian meant that there were two false basic ways of thinking, each of which steals the power and the distinctiveness of the gospel from us by pulling us down from the high road of the true gospel into one of these two ditches. But before we start and start to formulate a picture in our mind, we must realize that the gospel is not a halfway compromise between libertinism on the one hand and legalism on the other. It does not produce something in the middle, but something different and distinct from both. But let's start first with legalism. Legalism, as I believe I have stated before, is a term that we can carelessly toss in the direction of anyone who loves God's law and meditates upon it day and night more than we do. Or perhaps someone who has a conviction on some application, say Christian modesty, and embraces an application that is different or more rigid than ours. Whatever it is, and we could go on and on naming examples, we sometimes use the term loosely as an uncharitable distinction, and this is something we should stop doing, by the way. But when we say these things, we do not mean that we necessarily believe that those legalistic people, those who embrace a legalistic application, are trusting upon their applications and practices for their justification. But that is exactly what the term legalism is getting at. Legalism is abandoning the liberty we have in Christ to take on the yoke and bondage of the law and in every case of true legalism, it is a serious, grievous, soul-killing error. This is because it destroys the truth of our justification by grace alone through faith alone. Legalism steals a portion of God's glory and attempts to give that glory to man. Legalism attempts to purchase merit before God for some good thing in us or some good thing we have done but note what Paul writes in verse 6 of chapter 5. For in Jesus Christ, neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, but faith, which worketh by love. As the Judaizers were promoting circumcision to the Gentiles as a requirement for righteousness, Paul brings the focus back on faith. 
being circumcised or uncircumcised isn't the issue, but it, and it doesn't help or avail anything at all. What counts, what matters, is faith. And specifically, faith which, which works by love. In other words, the faith that justifies is not a faith that works externally or mechanistically or by obeying laws or rituals or man-made ceremonies. No, it is a faith that works by love. So what is this faith that works by love? What does that mean? And I think that's a good question. So let's turn for a moment to the Protestant reformers who recognize that biblical faith, the totality of faith, has three essential aspects. Notitia, ascensus, and fiducia. Notitia refers to the content of faith, or those things that we believe. It is informational. We place our faith in something, or more appropriately, someone. In order to believe, we must know something about that someone who is the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to hear the gospel. We need to hear the truth. A census is our conviction that the content of our faith is not just a story or a fable, but it's true. We assent. We assent to the truth of the information that we have received. You can know about the Christian faith and yet believe that it is not true. Genuine faith says that the content, the notitia taught by the Holy Spirit, is true. And thirdly, fiducia refers to a personal trust and reliance. Knowing and believing the content of Christian faith is not enough, for even demons can do that. Faith is only effectual if knowing about and assenting to the claims of Jesus, one personally trusts in Him alone for salvation. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? Okay, those three elements together. Okay. Taken together, these three aspects of faith reveal love. And it works both ways. For faith is the cause of love, and love is the fruit of faith. That which we know and believe and trust has worked its way through our minds and into our hearts. As Paul wrote Timothy in his first letter, letter, as I urged you when I went into Macedonia, remain at Ephesus that you may change, charge some that they, that they teach no other doctrine, nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies which cause disputes rather than godly edification, which is in faith. Now the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith, from which some have strayed and have turned aside to idle talk, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. Sadly, there are those who would be teachers only. They propound notitia of faith all day long and in excruciating detail, but they have not true faith nor understand the very faith they teach. This kind of faith causes disputes and is like a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. It has not love and it profits nothing. This is the faith 
of the legalist. We need to remember that Jesus was very hard on legalism, was He not? The legalism of the Pharisees. In Matthew 23, He called them blind guides which strain at a gnat and swallow a camel. He rebuked them for cleaning the outside of the cup while leaving the rottenness on the inside. He compared them to whitewashed tombs, clean and bright looking on the outside, but full of decay and defilement on the inside. He called them hypocrites because they did these things to be seen of man, and that is the very nature of this type of legalism. And by the way, it is the legalism of the Pharisees that leads to the legalism of the Judaizers. From Acts 15.5, we see that these Judaizers were former Pharisees. But if you take a moment, have you ever thought or meditated or seen or even maybe you walked down this path and considered how attractive legalism and its close cousin, moralism, are to us? We tend to see those who practice this sort of legalism as clean and conservative and capable. They're often filled with lots of knowledge and about Scripture, and they exercise admirable self-control. They tend to be highly devoted folks. But when we take a little closer look, when we pull back the covers, when they are tested, we see that they are filled with rules and the heart of their faith is either anemic or altogether absent. They understand that God is holy, just, and good, and as they pursue their religion, it is often either to end in self-hatred because they can't live up to the standard that they hold to, or self-inflation because they tend to think they have lived up to those standards. It's ironic that both errors have the very same root. Whether the legalist ends up smug and superior or crushed and guilty will depend, perhaps, upon how high the standards are and on a person's natural advantages or weaknesses or inclinations, such as family or intelligence or social status or their willpower. These people can be very deeply religious, but there is no transforming joy or power in that type of faith. The power of the gospel in their lives has been stolen by a legalism thief. They have fallen into the legalism ditch. And it is a ditch which torments one generation and repels and destroys the next. It torments a generation and repels and destroys the next. One pastor noted that as a youth pastor, it was the children of those parents that were most legalistic in their views that were the most hardened to the gospel. A youth pastor who sees the children, gets to know their stories, sees their lives being worked out, and as he presses the gospel into their lives, he sees a gospel-hardened exterior, formed by a legalistic environment in their homes. And it grieves me to recall that as Mary Susan and I have recently lightly followed the paths of the children of some of the most rules-driven families we have known through the years, we see that this pattern apparently 
is holding true, at least for a season. You may know some of these types of families. They have a long list of do's and don'ts that practically prohibit Christians from anything but church activities. It's not good enough to point out the dangers of gambling. They insist that if you are a good Christian, you must avoid playing cards altogether. They're not content with enjoying certain things in moderation and self-control, and so they make rules on all Christians and on their children in particular. I believe that it is in the homes where legalism begins to take hold that hypocrisy becomes most evident, for we all sin and fall short of the glory of God. And we need to know that our children are born with finely tuned hypocrisy meters. When we say one thing and do another, our children are fully aware and it forms and shapes their view of the gospel. Legalism tends to spread and find roots within a strong cultural context in churches. And typically, the strongest culture is found within the home, so the question is, what are we to do? When you sin in your home, and you do, be sure to repent in the presence of your children as often as you sin in the presence of your children. Speak often of your complete dependence upon and trust in the Lord Jesus of your life and manifest the faith, faith that worketh by love before the faces of your family members. Let love and faith together adorn your conversations, your training, and your discipline. And let it manifest joy as you work together and as you gather around the table for meals. In other words, stand fast in the liberty of Christ, and avoid and put off any form of legalism and don't fall into that ditch. But what about that other thief of the gospel, antinomianism? Antinomianism is the view that we do not need to follow God's commandments and proclaim freedom from the law in the form of some sort of libertinism, some unconstrained exercise of liberty. Antinomianism, or against the lawism, says that Christians can live however they want, for the law is in no way binding for believers. If legalism is the error of abandoning our liberty in Christ in order to return to the yoke of the law, antinomianism is the error of abandoning the liberty in Christ in order to return to the yoke of sin. And both of these errors are equally grave. Have you ever heard someone try to justify some sin by saying, but we are not under the law, we are under grace. I know that you have heard that. A pastor tells the story of a man who was in the process of leaving his wife for another woman. And he knew quite well, this man did, that Scripture forbid what he was doing. He knew it was a grievous sin against his wife and his children and against God. Yet he said he was sick of life with his wife. And so he was going to sin anyway and just ask for forgiveness later. In attempting to justify the sin, he told his counselor, I'm not under the law. I'm under grace. This man was a living example of someone who had abandoned the liberty of Christ 
to return to the yoke of sin. But do you remember how Paul addresses this in Romans 6? What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead in sin live any longer therein? God's law is beautiful and lovely, and His moral law is eternal and unchangeable. It is immutable. In Christ, our relationship to the law is changed, yet the law remains. We are no longer condemned by the law. We are free to love God's law. Yes, the ceremonial laws which pointed to Christ were fulfilled in Christ and passed away, yet when asked which is the greatest commandment, Jesus replied, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Christ did not throw out the law. He came to fulfill the law. As we love God and love our neighbors as ourselves, we are fulfilling the law. As a result of this love, we honor God's name. We keep His Sabbath. We don't steal or commit murder or commit adultery. And just to jump ahead a bit, Paul gives the response to the antinomian in verses 13 and 14. For brethren, ye have been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Brothers and sisters, love fulfills the law. It does not nullify it. The antinomian who quotes John 13.34 where Jesus says, A new commandment I give unto you that ye love one another and somehow believes that Jesus is doing away with the moral law has been greatly deceived. In saying this, Jesus is simply comprehending and encompassing all the moral law into a single commandment. This new commandment, love, gets to the heart of our motivation in keeping God's law. Those who look at the moral law as merely a discrete list of commands requiring only external compliance, thou shalt not covet, thou shalt not lie, thou shalt not have no other gods before me, etc., can mistakenly believe that they have achieved sinless holiness. Entire denominations have been built on this understanding. But it is not merely wooden adherence to the external commands that is required, but rather a heart obedience of love and in love. And so Jesus explains that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her in his heart already. The standard for obedience is far higher than observable external compliance. It is only the faith which works by love, the love that comprehends the totality of the law that we can begin to fulfill the law. And even that is only possible in Christ and by the help and presence of the Holy Spirit. Verse 5, For through the Spirit, for we through the Spirit wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. By faith, we stand fast in the liberty of Christ and avoid the ditch of antinomianism. 
and a yoke of sin. And so now we come to the heart of the message. That liberty in Christ that Paul is exhorting the Galatian church to stand fast in. This is a liberty which we must, in which we must hold and stand fast. Liberty wherewith Christ has set us free. As Paul writes, stand fast therefore in the liberty wherewith Christ has set you free and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. And as he says this, he is not saying that liberty is one optional or incidental benefit of what Christ has accomplished for us. The liberty that Paul is here writing about is a liberty that strikes at the very heart of God's saving purpose. Our freedom in Christ is a sacred trust that we must carefully guard and it must be kept and treasured lest we surrender it to one of the thieves of the Gospel or even diminish its importance. In stark contrast to those who prefer to divine Christianity as a list of rules that govern public behavior, Scripture defines the life of the Christian as one of complete and total liberty. This one verse captures the essence of Paul's whole appeal. This is the key command. This is the central overriding imperative among many good and practical exhortations in this very short letter. If you recall back in chapter 1, Paul pronounces the double anathema upon those who would preach another gospel, which is not another gospel at all, to those who would add circumcision as a prerequisite to true faith or something which is to be added to your faith to complete it. Paul says, let them be accursed. And so we shouldn't be surprised when we see here in chapter 5, verse 2, he writes, Behold, I, Paul, say unto you that if ye be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. We probably ought to take a moment here on that verse. Sometimes we are a little atomistic in our reading of Scripture. We take it out of context and, and we wonder, does, does this mean that if I have been circumcised or my son has been circumcised that there is no hope for me? It doesn't mean that at all. Before Christ, circumcision was a sign and a seal of the righteousness of faith. After Christ and the church was planted among the Gentiles, it became a deadly ceremony to those who placed their confidence and faith in circumcision. Making circumcision the object of their faith. Joining the work of circumcision to the work of Christ. In other words, if you are circumcised with the opinion and conviction that it is a meritorious cause of your salvation, then Christ shall profit you nothing. But why is that the case, you may ask? Paul answers in verse 3, For I testify again to every man that is circumcised that he is a debtor to do the whole law. By the whole law, Paul is saying that Whoever is circumcised for his salvation is bound to the ceremonial law, the judicial law, and the whole of the moral law. For whoever is justified by one act of the law is bound to perform the rest of the law perfectly and perpetually and completely for the rest of his justification. After the rich young ruler went away sorrowful in Matthew 19, 
Jesus said to his disciples, Assuredly, I say to you that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And as when his disciples heard it, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said to them, With men, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And so we see the heart of the gospel. We see that we have all fallen short. We see that it is impossible for us to be justified by the law. In verse 4, Christ is become of no effect to you, whosoever of you are justified by the law. You are fallen from grace. When we depend upon any natural righteousness within us, when we hold tightly a confidence that the faith of our tender hearts was joined to the work of Christ on the cross, when we attribute anything to our justification, to our salvation, apart from the perfect satisfaction of the law by God incarnate Himself in the person of Jesus Christ, then we are fallen from grace. But thanks be to God, Christ did live a perfect life of obedience to the whole of the law. Thanks be to God that He did take upon Himself our sins. We are eternally thankful that He bore in His body our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. And by His stripes we are healed. He was delivered for our offenses and was raised for our justification. And by Him we have access by faith, into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. But with man, in any effort on our own, in any striving or external ceremony, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. God has accomplished this for those who would believe in faith. This is the liberty we must guard and protect and cling to. This is the liberty that frees us from the bondage of sin. This is the liberty that frees us from eternal death and sends us joyfully into eternal life. This is a liberty which has its purpose and cause and ultimate end focused solely on the glory of our great God. Christ said, Whoever commits sin is a slave of sin, and a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, ye shall be free indeed. I said at the beginning of the message that the gospel is not a halfway compromise between two poles of legalism and antinomianism, that it does not produce something in the middle, but something different from both. The gospel life of liberty in Christ is different because it is God-centered. When we examine the, the two thieves of the gospel, those ditches of legalism and antinomianism, we see immediately that they are both man-centered. Legalism seeks to add man's righteousness to Christ's righteousness and thus becomes focused and ultimately consumed and trying to keep a standard that 
man simply can't bear. With man, this is impossible. Antinomianism denies the goodness and rightness of God's law and thus denies the very character of God. For the law is but a reflection of God's righteous character and perfect will. But the antinomian can't live with no law and so he will set the rules of his life according to his own desires. Libertinism and licentiousness are in his path. And it turns out, does it not, that he has placed his ultimate hope in himself. So antinomianism is found also to be man-centered. The very outset of his ministry, Jesus comes out of the temptation in the wilderness and is given a scroll from Isaiah to read. And he picks it up and he begins reading at Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that He may be glorified. Christ's redemptive work was founded and centered in liberty and freedom. But even here, we need to take care and understand the Scriptures. When Christ speaks of liberty for captives and freedom for the oppressed, He is not speaking of something mundane as political liberty for people under earthly tyranny. He is not planning the overthrow of the Roman government as despotic as that system was. He was not trying to foment a political revolution. He was not about social and economic justice for poor and disenfranchised people. We are so accustomed to hearing modern political radicals stealing these words, taking these words out of their context. Liberty for captivism, freedom for those in bondage, that if we don't pay attention to the context, we might think that Isaiah and Jesus were calling for a socialist revolution. But in Isaiah 61 and Luke 4, where we see Jesus read those words, the context is clearly speaking about spiritual deliverance, beginning with the redemption and the emancipation of those who are hopelessly in bondage to their own sin. We're born in sin. We're born under this bondage of sin. And so we're thankful for this kind of liberty, the kind of liberty that is the birthright of every believer. It is a full release from the bondage of evil and the death grip of the evil one. It is the greatest liberty imaginable. It is a liberty that transcends national borders in all forms of government in all ages. It is a liberty that is available to the wealthy and the powerful and also available to the poor and the powerless. It is a liberty that even those who are in abject slavery or under horrific oppression can know and know fully. 
This is a far more precious liberty than even the liberty we're enjoying right now as we gather for worship without fear of persecution. It is a liberty that Christ has authored and purchased. He is the worker of this liberty. In this liberty, Christ dissolves the works of Satan. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifest that He might destroy the works of the devil. 1 John 3.8 Christ has bound the strong man and cast him out of his hold. Matthew 12.29 It is a liberty that we are to be continually thankful for. The sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 15. It is a liberty that will see us through all of our trials, including every evil day that lies ahead. Therefore, Paul exhorts, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand the evil day having done all to stand. Ephesians 6. Brothers and sisters in Christ, this is the call. This is the joy. And this is the great privilege. Stand fast in the liberty of Christ. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that Christ came to proclaim liberty to the captives. And we are thankful for the freedom and the hope and the salvation, the redemption that we know and possess in Him, which is true liberty. Help us, O Lord, to stand fast in that liberty to love and proclaim the pure gospel with great power. Preserve us by your Holy Spirit and guard us from the thieves that would steal and destroy gospel living in our lives. And place us once again into that spiritual bondage that leads to death. Grant us the true freedom and joy to be your servants for righteousness' sake and for the glory of your name. For we pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.